Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, hey there, it's Nico. By now, you probably know who I am, but awkwardly, I know a whole lot less about you. So many of you tell me that you're listening to the show and I really want to know you more. Who are you? Why are you tuning in? What do you want most from Suncast? Let us know by going to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. It takes just five minutes and we'll read every answer. That's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. All right, here's the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, I just wanted to give a quick heads up. What you're about to hear was actually recorded live during the pandemic, but also during the first ever virtual solar conference hosted by our friends over at Midwest Solar Expo. I was the moderator, and we also did a couple of other things that you guys have heard from Midwest Solar Expo, but I was the moderator for a panel all about the innovations around operations and maintenance. Again, I think this is a topic that we just don't talk enough about in the industry uh, broadly and certainly not on podcasts, so trying to give more exposure to it. Thank you to our friends at Midwest Solar Expo for inviting us. Thanks also to Etienne Lecomte of PowerHub, Eric Peterman of GRNE Solar, and Regan Moen of Solve, a Swinnerton company, for joining us on this platform. It was such a really interesting conversation. You'll note that Etienne, for whatever uh, technical troubles he was having getting onto the platform, didn't join until just at the end. So do stay tuned all the way to the end so you can hear Etienne's contribution. He's one of our uh, frequent guests and and such a joy to, to communicate with. If you want to see what this looks like in the virtual reality space, you can check it out. Just search for Suncast Media on YouTube. And of course, we link to our YouTube channel on mysuncast.com. If you're eager to hear version two of this conversation, then while you're at mysuncast.com, check out our events page so that you can register for the upcoming webinar I'll be hosting with Regan Moen, again of Solve, and Sungro, all about O&M strategies for medium to large-scale utility solar projects. All right, here we go. We're going to be talking about operations and maintenance. How do we scale the asset management side of the business? And how do we market and allocate resources to support these O&M services? O&M is an increasingly important element and aspect of how the uh, how the industry maintains the revenues that everyone is expecting to get from these generating assets. We're going to have a conversation about that today. I've got Mr. Eric Peterman. Eric is the CEO and co-founder of GRNE Solar. Eric holds degrees in industrial engineering and management sciences from Northwestern and started GRNE in 2012, bringing a diverse business and life background, uh, having held positions in business operations for uh, for various different organizations from consulting to running direct businesses. He's also, to my knowledge, the only person on campus who has had uh, experience 
playing at the national level for the NFL. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nico. Great to be here. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. Just on the other side of Eric is my friend Regan Mon from Sol, part of Swinnerton Juggernaut that has been building uh, gigawatts of solar for the last three decades. Regan himself has been in the industry of energy, telecommunications, and retail for nearly three decades, from startups to Fortune 500 companies. And he's the business development manager for Solve, a software platform to provide asset management, O&M services to many of the large EPCs and project asset owners in uh, the U.S. and increasingly abroad. Regan, thanks for being here today. Yeah, Nico, thank you. You know, currently living in, in Southern California, but little known fact, I'm actually from Minnesota. We still have a farm out on the Western Plains and uh, still active, but um, it's always good to be able to get back to Minnesota, uh, whether uh, in real life or virtually as well. So great to be here. Fantastic. That's fascinating. Well, you've had a tremendous experience over the last three decades uh, in the solar industry. I mean, you and I were working in solar in the early days in the uh, in the in the aughts in the teens in California. It's been exciting to see how uh, the Solve platform has grown. I'm looking forward to hearing your contributions here today as well as uh, the on the ground assets uh, and and the deployments that GRNE are focused on. Not present at the moment as he works out some audio technical difficulties is the CEO and co-founder of PowerHub, Etienne Lecomte. He's a recognized leader and, and a Canadian entrepreneur in renewable energy software development and regulatory compliance. Having built PowerHub from scratch and recently exited to uh, Bewa, uh, PowerHub has become one of the leading platforms for asset management and is redefining that category for renewable energy industry. We hope that Etienne will be able to join us here momentarily. Well, here we are virtually in the Midwest at the Midwest Solar Expo. After seven uh, or so years, this has become one of the uh, most sought after and, and respected regional shows and is in fact itself a region in the United States that is just exploding, namely with small utility and commercial scale projects. But increasingly, in states like Illinois, uh, residential and CNI markets are uh, as well poised to see tremendous growth. One of the things that I'd like to start out with here in the very beginning is just taking a look at uh, at the outset of this panel is the variation that uh, asset management and O&M rep- represent, uh, not only uh, across regions, but also across verticals, residential, CNI, utility scale. O&M and asset management have become more an essential piece of the operational bankability of these projects. So Eric and Regan, I'd like to hear, we'll start with you, Eric. Broadly speaking, you know, what are some of the trends that we're seeing surface around regional and even these market segment verticals like CNI that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, definitely, Nico. I think uh, like you and I spoke about last week, just it, we're seeing a much broader adaption of solar in the midwest now it's it's obviously for years been great on the west coast then the east coast and now the midwest seems to finally be picking up speed and coming around as well so with that deployment of more solar fields more solar assets and then shortly following that the need for o&m services so i think that's really kind of where we're at um, currently is starting to see more and more assets being deployed more and more systems coming online um, and then as time passes, 
more of a need for the O&M services for those solar fields. So it's interesting to see the, the explosion of solar in the Midwest now that uh, we've got some some great development going on, but now just making sure that we're taking care of those assets for the long term as well and uh, pre-planning as best we can for, for O&M to, to make sure that these assets are good for the long haul. Yeah. Regan, you know, you've been in the industry, you know, where our industries exploded on the coasts, namely California and New Jersey. The Northeast is huge, obviously. Yeah. North Carolina is a big, uh, you know, a big market for, you know, five megawatt queues, uh, qualified facilities. I'm curious, as a relatively new region in the broader U.S. market, what trends are you seeing from the asset management perspective that you'd like to highlight as a, as a software and O&M provider? Yeah, you know, um, been watching Minnesota for a number of years and being in the industry, you know, I remember when, you know, the maximum uh, project in Minnesota, I think was only 40 kW. You know, I think with legislation and Minnesota being a progressive state and wanting to really dive deeper into renewables, not only on the wind side, but then opening up the floodgates to, to solar and allowing developers and owners to come in to take a look at not only utility size projects, we're, we're, we built and are currently managing the North Star 140 megawatt site up by North Branch, just north of Minneapolis, St. Paul here. Uh, but then, you know, the advent of, of community solar, you know, we, we first really saw that explode in, in Colorado and then Minnesota, the Northeast, California, and how Minnesota adopted to that fairly quickly. Um, and then seeing them do things like pollinator-friendly solar projects where, you know, we, we truly care about native grasses and, and you know, a lot of our sites have beehives uh, on site to be able to add to the, the replenishment of, of bees, but then also have honey coming off site, which is kind of a little bit gimmicky, but the way they're structuring how to be able to maintain these solar projects in Minnesota, I think, is now carrying out throughout the rest of the country. And we could have conversations on, you know, how do you keep the OPEX down as well as possible? And sometimes pollinator friendly initially can start up at a higher rate, but I think over time it's it's working well. And Minnesota, as I said, I think is uh, progressive and what they've done over the last few years, it was great to be able to see Minnesota get into the solar, solar game. And now seeing these projects all over the state is quite comforting and seeing an opportunity for national players like, like Solve, but also those regional players who I think have a lot of opportunity to do some work and take care of these sites. Yeah, I'm curious, given the wild swings, for example, in climate, uh, it could be more taxing for the hardware, uh, not just the power electronics, but also the mechanical elements, especially on these utility scale projects like trackers, et cetera. I'm curious, do the issues that we see surfacing in the Midwest market mirror some of the the failures or troubleshooting issues that we have to take uh, a look at in other areas of the United States, or are they unique to this region? Eric, what's you guys' experience with that? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Nico. I think to some extent, you're going to have some similarities, you know, if you're using equivalent equipment, materials, you know, the same racking supplies, the same inverters, et cetera, you're going to have some some similar troubleshooting issues or O&M issues as you would anywhere in the United States. But for the climate changes and the, the differing climates that we have in the Midwest as compared to the coast, I think 
provide some extra obstacles as well. Whereas in some localities, you might just get, you know, hot weather and cool, cool weather, you know, not cold. And then maybe some extreme conditions on the coast. But in the Midwest, you really have the opportunity to see all different types of weather conditions. So it's, it's cyclical for sure. You're going to see all of the seasons. So then you've got to deal with the issues that come with all of the seasons from sweltering heat to bitter cold and all of the, you know, tornado force winds and um, everything in between. So doing your best to prepare for the changing climates and, and really the rapid change as well coming from if anybody's spent any time in the Midwest, you know, the weather can change on a dime. So being able to protect your assets as best as possible from 90 degree weather one day and 30 degree weather the next day, you know, something that you definitely um, try to plan for as best you can, because it can be taxing. Like you said, the power electronics, just being, being out in the, uh, in the weather conditions is going to be taxing for any type of electrical equipment but also for the for the mechanicals and, and some of the other assets or aspects of the system as well. When you get those differing temperature drops from hot to cold or cold to hot, you're going to see some expansion and contraction in, in your racking materials and your conduit, and then potentially even causing issues with your posts in the ground if it's a ground mount system. Regan, I'm sure you're familiar with the term frost heave, um, being, uh, being from Minnesota, where the ground will freeze and potentially push, want to push the posts out of the ground. So developing a strategy uh, and designing a strategy early on in the process when these products are being developed, whether it's ground screws or deeper piles to get below the frost heave or some other strategy where you're protecting your, your physical posts in the ground from being pushed out of the ground because of the temperature changes. You know, that's something that uh, are a couple different aspects that we see in the Midwest that we've got to um, definitely take note of and plan accordingly for. Yeah. In fact, um, Eric, that was the first thing on, on, on my list to talk about, right? We see snow in different parts of the country and you know, yeah. a few years ago up in the Boston area where it just dumped and, and was incredible, especially, you know, affecting the, the CNI projects out there and, and what do you do you know you just let the sun come out and, and melt it here in minnesota you know i always joke that you know it will typically snow in november and you won't see the road again until maybe april <laughs> and yeah. you're you're exactly right with 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 frost heave and to be able to now consider you know what is that capex what, what does that do to your capex if yeah. you have to add another three four feet of steel and then having an engineering firm that will support it. And whether it's a, a fixed tilt system or some of these projects now are, are doing these single access opportunities that they're going to have to have a longer, deeper pile or ground screws. But definitely here, a challenge in Minnesota with, with, with how cold it gets. You know, there's um, another reason why, you know, you, people who live up here in minus 30 degree weather you know, the other issue we have to um, concern ourselves is our technicians and safety. Part of our safety team, I remember a couple of years ago, prior to going to Minnesota, was, you know, if it drops below 10 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe a technician should reconsider, you know, doing work for that day. And our Minnesota people are like, well, there goes January and February, 
right? <laughs> Part of March. How do we how do we properly outfit our technicians in order to still do their job in a safe manner and keep them warm? You know, we talked earlier about some of the equipment that is affected by the cold weather and tracker company put in this large site up by North Branch and you know they didn't go with a cold weather package for some of the batteries you know once it gets down to minus 30 and nico you and i were talking about this the other day what happens to batteries at extremely cold temperatures they start to fail and yeah. they they become an issue and now it challenges some of our vendors out there on in states where it does get cold to be able to provide a cold weather package if you will to ensure that these projects are still up and running. Yeah, I think one of the things that is a prevailing concern, and we'll talk certainly more about how we can help developers who bring these projects to life bake more of these issues into their original uh, their original financial model. But who covers these costs, right? You've got uh, specific protections needed for these types of environments. You just mentioned, uh, in particular, the need for perhaps a hard line uh, AC control instead of relying on batteries. And, you know, in my experience, just even on a small 10 megawatt scale project, uh, relatively small, this can have a dramatic impact on the overall bottom line on the project economics. So how how do you see project owners responding to these types of issues that pop up in the, you know, in the go to, in the construction phase of these projects? I think they're getting smarter, right? Um, to be able to put a project in Minnesota, you have to do your best guess with weather, you know, what kind of production mm. you're getting in in the winter um, when the sun is as low to the horizon as it is. They're having to model these projects in a better way to be able to understand that, you know, you are dealing with production issues. You are dealing with um, snow loads that, you know, instead of the cost of a contractor coming out and you know off modules, does that even make sense? Um, that going to be a, a financially revenue impacting duration in the positive to to do those type of efforts, or do you model it in such a way where you know things like that are going to happen, and you have a comfort as an owner that we're not going to have a, a good production over a number of weeks. And luckily, you know we're not we're not the owners and, and developers who are taking that risk. But I think those who are doing work here in Minnesota are getting better at it. They're they're seeing what the the results have been and, and pulling that data and making their model assumptions a little more tighter, I guess, or they're they're getting better at assume making those assumptions and they're not worrying about the crushing uh, blizzard that comes through and, and you have loss of production for a few days. Let's switch gears here for just a moment and think about strategy. You know, we're talking about a lot of the uh, acute issues that folks have to worry about or think about when assessing a project for asset management, o and addressing critical issues. But at a strategic level across the value chain, there are different skill sets required from an EPC to deliver O&M services uh, as a vertically integrated solution versus a company perhaps like Solve that can do so uh, at a at very tactically and across the nation. I'd love to hear from you guys' perspective. What do you need to be good at to go to market with O&M, whether you are an O&M only company or if in the case of, of GRNE, you are rolling it into part of your EPC service as local or regional provider? Eric, you want to take that? 
Yeah, sure, Nico. So I'd say just, you know, the basic answer is problem solving. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but you've got to be able to figure out what the issue is and then how do we how do we fix it? Uh, how do we remedy it and prevent that issue from happening again? There, there's definitely some aspect of being able to uh, logically think about cause and effect. What caused this and why is the effect that it's not working anymore? So um, certainly there's some of that um, detective work that goes into it. But you also have to have the basic electrical understanding as well to, to have the know-how of how the system operates and how it functions, what happens in different scenarios that could potentially cause issues with the system. I think what helps is if you have some background or foundation of being able to install or have the ability to understand how the the asset functions, that's going to better prepare you for success down the road when issues do come up. So the discussion that we've had is, does it make sense for somebody purely to do O&M or does it make sense to find an EPC firm that has some experience installing and tack on services for O&M. I think either are possible, but I think kind of at the core, having that baseline foundation of, of having installation experience or having the ability to have general installation experience in different aspects of racking for what failures can we forecast for racking, either from fixed tilt, we talked about frost tube earlier, um, potential vibrations in racking that could have nuts and bolts uh, come loose or the clamps on the modules. If it's a tracker system, what, you know, that adds complexity because now you have motors involved. What potential failure points do we have for motors? If you physically touched and installed that, those type of equipment, you've got a better understanding of, okay, I remember when, you know, we installed this this way and there was a potential failure point because of X, Y, Z. And same thing for the power electronics that go in as well, the inverters and um, any communications or controls that you have for battery operated systems as well. It's one thing to prepare and learn from a manual and being able to go out. And certainly that that is effective in some cases. But I think having that field experience, that field knowledge will definitely better prepare the technicians for O&M down the road, whether it's, you know, finding somebody that does have field experience or EPC experience in their past or finding, you know, an EPC firm to be able to service needs for, uh, for O&M down the road. You know, you mentioned the variation of uh, who does what in the marketplace. And it's one of the topics that I find really fascinating over time, we've seen this bifurcation in the market. There are national and what we might call bankable providers like Solve, who've done six, seven gigawatts of, uh, of portfolio, going to be nearing 10 by the end of, uh, of the year, next year. And you've got local, highly technical providers. Uh, and there's always the, it's the same on the installation side. There's always this interplay between vertical integration of who has technicians in the field versus subcontracting. Notably, VaxGen, one of the largest in world water and solar, uh, just both got acquired by Pierce. Uh, solar and Sun System Technologies is a massive company serving the, ma- the, the nation- nationwide market along uh, with Solve and, and PowerHub. I- I'm curious if O&M is a locals game and if how does that bankability work out? Uh, is it, is it t- uh, vertical specific, meaning utility versus resi and CNI? 
Regan, how do you see that working out from the perspective of Solve, where you are both hiring technicians full-time on site, as well as, I imagine, subcontracting technicians for specific tasks? As a company, we're employee-owned. As a 132-year-old general contractor, our, our philosophy has always been to keep most of what we do in-house, meaning we typically don't sub out to different uh contractors to do tech work. So for us, we've we've had to build out an area. And like in Minnesota, we were fortunate enough to be able to win the the North Star project where I was able to put uh, three, four technicians there on a daily basis, right? Monday through Friday, they're showing up at a large site. There's enough hours that is required to do your preventive maintenance. You know, in order to preserve the warranty, there are certain things you have to do for the inverter and the tracker and the upkeep of the system. But there are some gaps in there that we're able to bring in other technicians in-house who then take care of our projects throughout the state. You know, the the co-located five megawatt AC projects, a bunch of ones together, or just the single one megawatt sites where we're doing some drive time, doing some face time on the on the on the windshield to be able to get to these particular projects. But then how do you determine scope? You know, what is actually required uh, for preventive maintenance compared to any reactive or corrective maintenance? And for a national player, we enjoy working with owners who want to be able to diversify their operators. And in some cases, does it make sense to go with a regional or smaller operator, take care of those smaller projects? But when it comes to utility and, and you wondered, Nico, whether or not it's vertically specific. And I think it is, especially in the utility space. When you have uh, a, a NERC site, you know, anything over 75 megawatt AC with 100 kV interconnect, there's going to be NERC 693 and critical infrastructure protection systems and protocols that have to go in place. And I don't think those smaller regional players who have never been in the NERC space can get there. Plus, if you have banks and IEs and tax equity investors um, having some sort of comfort level with their long-term investment, they want to be able to have, as you said, a bankable player that has done it before, that has a NERC 693 team that has a SIP compliance manager and support people around that for the generator owner SIP program, having a 24-7 medium impact NERC compliant operations control center. It's a major investment to be able to not only build a a 24-7 monitoring platform that is staffed by, we're currently at 13 dispatchers 24-7, but also having the bodies to ensure that all the NERC 693 and and SIP protocols are being followed. So that sometimes eliminates a regional or a smaller player and the need for a national player. And that doesn't mean we're we're able to charge 2X. The the owners still expect best value. They wanna keep their OPEX as well as possible. And having the resources in-house and that are scalable, um, by the end of next year, we'll have 29 NERC sites, 10 gigawatts next year, 
and that's anywhere from a 650 megawatt one site where we have seven technicians that are dedicated to that site Monday through Friday, all the way down to a you know, 80 kW site in in Nevada. So I, I think the the national players like like Solve are definitely a somebody to look at um, the Max Gems uh, the others that. When you have a larger site, it, it makes sense to to have a conversation with us. But if it's these smaller one megawatt sites, we'll try to continue to be competitive. And, and if we have techs in the area, then we will offer that support, especially the clients who are not only having these larger sites, but they're buying these small CNI sites as well. I would love some clarification on the acronym NERC for those of us who are not inside the inner workings of, of asset management. Um, it is part of FERC, so the Federal Electric uh, Reliability Council. Uh, NERC uh, oversees all the power for large generators coming onto the grid. So there are certain protocols within NERC that uh, are required. There's worries or concerns about terrorism uh, being done over over the internet, right? To be able to log into, you know, a, a SCADA platform at a large mm. 200 megawatt site, there are, are things that we have to do to ensure that the bulk energy system is protected because the the ISOs, the RTOs, the utilities out there are, are delegating power into the grid at certain times and there needs to be protections and certain protocols that exist. For a great example would be if curtailment orders come in from uh, an ISO or a qualified scheduling entity that they call up our 24-7 operations center and say, you know, curtail that plant because we have too much power on the grid and we need to back off a bit. We have these systems in place in order to not only record that phone call coming in, but then a set of instructions to be able to carry out those orders and to be able to document those for for uh, audit purposes whenever NERC auditors. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy. You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of eight gigawatts. It's mind blowing. And it includes a single site project of two gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega scale projects like Adani. 
If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form, and we'll put you in touch with their local team. Yeah, Eric, you guys at GRNE are a regional EPC, and you're rolling out no name strategy as a service. I'm curious, what does training look like for your team? And I'd certainly love Regan's perspective on what he's seen done right and what he hasn't, what he's seen sort of fail in the field. But from GRNE's perspective, how do you think about getting your, your field technicians who've been predominantly installing solar projects tuned into the right level of uh, professional acuity to be able to provide ongoing O&M for these sites after operation? Yeah, definitely. Great question, Nico, because uh, I think there is that there is a difference between just being an installer and then being somebody who's qualified to, uh, to troubleshoot own issues. So I think like like we talked about earlier, I think being an installer or having that field experience can definitely set the foundation for you to, uh, to have a better chance for success um, in that field technician role as an O&M provider. But really what we see is uh, working closely with the manufacturers of the products. So understanding the installation manuals that everything is installed per manufacturer spec. Um, if something, if there's a breakdown in, in some way or in some facet, working closely with the manufacturer to understand why. Was it a hardware malfunction? Was it um, weather related? Was it you know, a rodent or something else or um, uh, something outside of our control that got in and um, we have a site in Indiana that um, it's a little over two megawatt site that just went offline or just went online last year. And just this past week, um, there was an issue and we went on site to troubleshoot it. And, um, you know, remotely uh, not being on site, nobody could really determine what the issue was, just that there was a, there was a surge and that um, the protections had shut part of the system down. So when we go on site to troubleshoot it, our electrician um, found out that uh, there was a rodent that got into the cabinet and uh, went across phases and wow. fried, the, fried the rodent to a crisp and it uh, took our system offline. So, um, you know, it was actually the, the product owner sent a technician on site and they could not understand what the problem was. So then they called us out on site. So this was actually the second person going to site to try to troubleshoot it. But, you know, the first person that went to site didn't have the experience or, or didn't mm. catch that there was uh, that this could even be a potential, you know, having somebody who's experienced and uh, who physically did the install and has a little bit more understanding of how the system operates. They were able to explain and capture that um, <laughs> this rodent sitting at the bottom of the switch gear um, had cross phases and shorted it. And, you know, that's that's what caused the surge and took the system offline. For training purposes, it's, uh, I think, starting with some field experience, getting people comfortable with um, how systems go together, what the potential failure points are, and then understanding the equipment installed on that site. So if it's a tracker system, understanding how the motor, uh, what the purpose of the motor is and, and how that motor will turn the, the racking structure to be able to optimize the efficiency from your array. If it's uh, inverters or control systems or DAS or monitoring, anything to that uh, aspect, understanding from the manufacturer perspective how that piece of equipment is supposed to operate and then troubleshooting what the potential issue is when things go awry. Most of our training, you know, we have the basic training from NAPSAP. We've got OSHA certifications to make sure that there's safety 
Um, and then the field, uh, field certifications, making sure that people are comfortable in the field, but then mostly understanding from a manufacturer perspective, the ins and outs of how that equipment is supposed to operate and then troubleshooting accordingly. Eric, I appreciate that perspective. And uh, it's really, uh, for me, it's really interesting to think about from a team and organizational development perspective, how do you know you've got the right pieces on the right, in the right places, the right trucks, uh, the right equipment? Regan, I know you and I have chatted before about the complexity that we see in the field, outfitting technicians, vehicles, site requirements to minimize not only truck rolls, which Solve and other platforms help to sort of solve for, but also to minimize uh, downtime of the site, which is ultimately what the asset owner cares about. On these yeah. mega, yeah, on these mega utility projects that you guys have uh, the most experience on, I'd love to know if you've dialed in an efficient ratio, as it were, of technicians to megawatts and what those relative costs are. I get the sense that in the marketplace, folks don't really have a good fix on what it actually costs to deploy these, uh, you know, these operations assets. Yeah, you know, and and um, hourly labor rates don't. Uh, don't go down over time, right? You know, you, you have some owners uh, asking about trying to flatline escalators. And, you know, if you hire on some good technicians that, you know, are trained, they, they know the site, they, they know how to work on the, on the equipment. And every year they're going to expect some sort of raise, right? In order to keep them. And one of the operator is how do we keep great talent and how do we continue to, to, to train them, you know, there's, there's not just the, Hey, we, we hire a person and get some training and, and on the vendors that are on a particular site and they're able to make repairs, but, you know, we go into all the OSHAs, the management training for some of our lead techs and all of that has a overhead aspect to it, but to be able to outfit a, a technician with, you know, the right truck, you know, can it carry a couple of string inverters and all of the different gear from fuses to wiring to uh, parts for the, the tracker? Eric made a great point as far as being able to get things fixed. But then what is that spare part strategy looks like, right? As far as if you go to a site and you don't have the tools or the spare parts to be able to get it up and running right away, then how long does it take for a vendor to be able to come out and do the repair? How long does it take for a vendor to ship you a part? Working with your developers to and owners that have a good spare part strategy, whether it be on a large project or even those one or five megawatt projects in, in Minnesota, having a good, robust spare parts package. But when you're giving technicians all the tools, whether it's torque wrenches to IR guns to... Uh, meters to their PPEs, it costs a lot to be able to start up a, a, a business in, in this space, um, recognizing that it's just not, you know, putting a person and allowing them to drive their own vehicle to, to a project. It, it's a major cost to be able to operate. And then how do we take care of our clients and give them the proper response times and the training of those technicians who can do replacement part so that we can keep those those sites up and running as as much as they can. I just want to take a quick moment here to reintroduce Etienne Lecomte from Power Hub. Hey Etienne. Hi guys. We're gonna incorporate Etienne into the conversation here and stoked to have you back on stage, my friend. Uh, technical difficulties aside, uh, Power Hub is one of the leading platforms for 
providing this sort of deep dive uh, management uh, remotely for asset owners. Uh, we've been talking broadly about uh, the local game and the, the implicit costs. Ian, I'd love to hear if you have any perspective, particularly around what you consistently find that developers don't know that they don't know about rolling out asset management as a service to their clients. And their, their job is to develop these assets. And then in some cases, they sell them. In some cases, they try to manage them. But what's been your experience at PowerHub uh, working with hundreds, if not thousands of clients? Funny enough, I was having this conversation this morning. A developer who's now going to the ownership role who are setting up their asset management practice. Uh, and so it really starts with the definition of asset management and where does it start and where does it stop? And because that's really non-standard uh, throughout our industry. So that's maybe a big thing that they, they don't know. And uh, I'm sure you've, you've talked about regional differences, contractual differences, uh, uh, if you're if you're spread out or if you're centralized in a specific area, there's all types of challenges that that you can that you can face, and and usually will be more work and more costly than you think. <laughs> so that's where kind of good support organizations, good good OM partners, good technology partners can really help level up and speed up your deployment. So you're not bringing undue risks to your projects just by taking on a broader scope uh, right off the bat. One of the things that, from my perspective, is maybe non-obvious around development uh, and portfolio theory, Regan and I talked about a bit. I'd love to hear, and Regan, we'll start with you, and maybe we'll, uh, the three of you guys can cover this as a topic. In the way of advice developers, questions should they be asking of their service providers, uh, be it platform or uh, in the field technicians? Where can developers help themselves, set themselves up for better success? Uh, around portfolio optimization as a great example. Regan, you want to take that wow. first? Yeah, you know, when we were talking about this the other day, you know, this is one of those questions I love to hear from developers or owners, you know, when they actually take time to reach out to companies like us, Solve or, you know, I see Nolan Lords out there from QE Solar, um, another well-respected O&M player, you know, who both of us rely on data, right? And we understand what the mean time between failure rates look like on an inverter or a tracker in different parts of the country. If an owner is looking to build in Minnesota or they're looking to build in Arizona, there's differences of what to be concerned with. You know, we talked earlier about frost heave and um, batteries and components on inverters, but having a relationship with a operator to be able to ask those questions and be able to make best decisions on vendor selections for their project, I think makes sense. It also makes sense that, and, and I know it, it's all about being able to grab land and, and work with the different landowners to be able to secure a plot where a project is able to be built you know, next to a, a transmission line. But if you have uh, one project that's down by Rochester or Albert Lee and the other one's up by Moorhead, you know, that drive time, who pays for that? <laughs> you know, if it's a if it's a five, six, seven hour drive from, you know, your your furthest southeast project in Minnesota all the way up to the the western border, you know, up near Fargo Moorhead area. There's a lot of drive time and how do you become efficient? You know, do you try to focus on a grouping of projects? So 
a technician can work on, you know, four, five, six uh, sites within a, a few days, and they're able to get a hotel and, and branch out, be able to have projects spread out over the state. Now you're going to have to start talking to us about, you know, who's paying for the drive time, what kind of response times are you going to be expecting as a, a owner as well. So those who come to us and ask those type of questions, we, we, we have the data, we understand the product, and we can help you with you know, making a decision on groupings of projects or portfolio that is going to give you the most efficient or best price for operational expense over time. Eric, I'd love to hear your perspective on the ground, what you're... Uh what you're experiencing there from that from this perspective of how you are engaging with uh, developers and indeed as a as an EPC how you are thinking about um, how to help your team and your company grow into this role absolutely yeah two points I can touch on here Nico and, and Regan I think that was great insight as well setting clear expectations early on is definitely important whether it's from the data perspective, understanding what we can can and can't do remotely, and then what our expectations in terms of uh, on-site visits. I mean, every time you call it roll a truck, every time you roll a truck to a site, that costs money. It costs labor. It costs gas. It costs wear and tear on the vehicle. What are the expectations in terms of response time with either looking at the data remotely from your monitoring system or rolling a truck to have physical boots on the ground, evaluating uh, and troubleshooting what the problem is on site. So I think making sure that you have uh, a clearly defined understanding of what the developer or product owner wants and then what's expected from, uh, from the O&M provider. So I think that's very clear on the front end because the data is very important and the monitoring is extremely important and can provide great insights, but it doesn't always replace having a physical technician on site to be able to troubleshoot what's what's actually going on. So I think there's there's just no no way to replace having somebody a technician a qualified technician on site to be able to troubleshoot in some instances. But also, what does the compensation structure look like for these O&M services? It's, and it's what does the product owner, the asset manager, what, what do they want to build into their financial model? Do they want a all-inclusive flat rate for the life of the asset? Or do they want a fee-for-service type of model where you don't incur any costs unless you do have issues that arise and that you do have to roll a truck or engage in some type of service to remedy the fix. So I think those are two important distinctions on how you can structure an O&M service and how you want to model it from a financial perspective is, do you want a fee-for-service where you, you, you're not really sure exactly what your costs are going to be? And it depends on you know, the success or failure of your, of your asset or if you can find a provider who's able to uh, take some of that risk as well and provide a guaranteed service at a flat rate for the life of the asset, you know that's the decision that the developers and the product uh, owners I think have to weigh early on and, and what's their strategy for O and M for the for the asset. I think there's super points, uh, Eric and Regan. I'll take it up one level. I, I think Nico, what you're asking also from developers is. How can they help themselves in the long run? Uh, so from having seen many different developers and so on, 
ultimately, renewables uh, projects are often tied up with a bunch of different agreements. So key thing, a key advice is be, be careful of the promises you make to get a signed piece of paper, uh, like an easement or a land lease and things like that, because they're, they're adding complexity to what you'll need to manage in the long run. Uh, similarly, uh, with O&M providers, EPC providers, and so on, standardization of certain criteria is going to go a long way and then putting exceptions and appendices and so on to kind of ease the complexity of what you're going to end up managing. Exceptions are very easy to, to do when you're running one project. They're uh, a key point of failure if you're managing 100 and they become completely unsellable if you're managing uh, a mixed bag of, of projects with all different technology, different service providers, different types of agreements, different PPAs, and so on and so forth. So uh, think through basically the one-offs and the exceptions that you keep making when you're developing a project, because thinking through them today is going to help you in the long run as well. That's a wrap on this conversation, Warrior, but I do hope that we'll see you back here on Thursday for this week's long-form interview. I also encourage you to check out other episodes of Suncast, and let me know what you think of these shorter-form discussions. Do you want more like this? We've got hundreds of episodes, resources, and highlights from these discussions, along with the social media links for each episode guest, book recommendations, and so much more over at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with our Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly tribe-exclusive emails or even joining our exclusive inner circle of infinite learners and clean economy champions we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I do so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. And a special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, as well as learn more about becoming a sponsor if that's something that you're interested in. You can follow the links there as well to any of the offers that we've discussed about any of our sponsors here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.